Great. Thank you, Beth, for reading that for us. Um, Do keep your Bible open in front of you uh, and follow along. I'm going to just start with a warning to you this morning. We are this morning considering probably some of the darkest depths of human sin and wickedness. I'm uh, conscious that what we find in God's Word this morning for us is both very, very important, but also really, really difficult for us to hear. So uh, my prayer in preparing this week has been that in the in the kind of darkness of Romans 1, the brightness and beauty of the cross of the Lord Jesus would burn even more brightly. So let's pray and ask God that he would help us as we come to his word. Let's pray. Father God, we, we come humbly to your words, asking for your help this morning. We know that we need your help not only in simply just understanding what is written, but maybe even more so in taking it to heart and accepting it and let it shaping our lives. And so we want to pray this morning that by your spirit you would be at work in us, uh, in the words that I use, in the way that we all listen. In Jesus' name, amen. At 10 a.m. on the 28th of July this year, Uh, TV cameras were allowed into the Old Bailey to televise the sentencing of a guy called Ben Oliver. Ben was 25 and had been convicted of killing his grandfather in a brutal attack. The 74-year-old man was bed-bound and paralysed from a stroke. The passing of the sentence itself was fairly undramatic, but what followed was a history of Ben's life to that point, the facts upon which the case has been decided, as the judge put it. What followed then was just a a catalogue of wickedness and brokenness. Ben's mum, we're told, was adopted as a 10-year-old child and suffered from severe physical and mental ill health. She'd spent much of her adult life in hospital. Ben had then been born following a short relationship and was raised by his mum and a stepfather who was cruel to him exposed him to things that no one should see, and filmed himself beating Ben. Sadly, but maybe inevitably, Ben then went on to repeat the behaviour of his stepfather and spent time in prison himself for his own treatment of children in his care. He was released shortly before COVID, and for a short while he lived independently in a flat that had been provided for him. But the isolation of the pandemic and the the fear of getting ill spiralled in his mental health, and he became anxious and suicidal, a danger to himself and to others. It seemed in Ben's life the only real light was his relationship with his grandmother. And when he discovered how badly she had been let down by her husband, Ben's grandfather, well, Ben killed him in what the judge described as a ferocious, frenzied, merciless attack on a man who couldn't move from his bed. It's a, it's a horrible, horrible story, but I want to ask you as we start this morning, how do you account for that? How do you reckon for a world in which that sort of thing happens? How do you explain a world where wickedness piles on wickedness, piles on wickedness, piles on wickedness, piles on wickedness for generation and generation? Uncontrolled, unchecked, spiraling world of chaos. Why is it, do you think, that our world is like that? What does it say about you, about me? 
What does it say about the human race? That for all the the beauty and the goodness that we enjoy, still a spiraling wickedness is never very far away and which we're not innocent from ourselves. Well, that's the question that our passage wants us to think about this morning. This morning, Romans 1 is going to rub your nose into the wickedness of our world and say, listen, look at that, will you? Look at it. It has something to teach us, to reveal something to us of what's wrong with the world and what salvation must look like. Look at how verse 18 introduces it. Look down at verse 18. For the wrath of God, it starts. Uh, This is God's settled, immovable, absolutely right, pure and important opposition to all sin and wickedness. This is the, the justified and inevitable response of a holy God to what is not holy. When something that is not holy meets God's holiness, what comes is wrath, judgment. And we're told, aren't we, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. God's judgment, we're told, is being made visible. We are able to see God's right response on human sin. It's being revealed from heaven. This is the parallel to verse 17 where we saw last week that the rightness of God, the righteousness of God was being revealed in the preaching of the gospel. Here, the holy opposition of God to sin is being revealed from heaven. Not as it turns out so much in the preaching of the gospel, but as we'll find out in the chaos of the world. Look down again at verse 8. Sorry, at verse 18. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men or of humanity. In other words, God's wrath is not just selected against the worst bits of ungodliness. It's not just the unright bits of our culture that we're particularly bothered about. No, this is God's wrath, God's holy opposition to all sin, all ungodliness. All unrighteousness, including yours and mine. In other words, here's the point. That hellish nightmare of Ben's story and all the ways that that story and millions like it are experienced by all of us shows to us and reveals to us that you and I live in a world under the judgment of the God who made it. That's what our passage is going to tell us this morning. And as we look at it together, I want just to ask three questions. What have we done wrong? How has it affected us? And what are the consequences? What have we done wrong? How has it affected us? And what are the consequences? Firstly, then, what have we done wrong? Paul answers that at the end of verse 18 with the words, suppress the truth. Suppress here is from the verb to have. The point is that humanity knows something, but holds it back, pushes it out of its mind to avoid the consequences. What that is gets spelt out in the next couple of verses. So Paul insists that God has made himself plain or visible. Verse 20, his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature, are there written large for everybody to see. Where? Well, in the end of verse 20, in the things that have been made. In other words, there is a a truth in the world that's been actively squashed by all humanity, that there is a truth in the world which everyone can see, that God, the eternal, powerful God, made everything made us. Powerful and eternal because he's the one who is before all things. The creator because he's the source of all things. And so we're told that people are without excuse at the end of verse 20. No one can say, I didn't know that there was a God. No one can say that because they did know there was a God, but they pushed it down, squashed it, suppressed it. Now Paul then tells us through the passage the different ways in which we do that. There are three of them. Let me point them out to you. The first one is in verse 21. 
For although they knew God, they did not honour him as God or give thanks to him. Now that tracks, doesn't it? The most obvious fact in all of our lives is that we did not make ourselves. The life that we have is a gift given to us by someone who is themselves the source of life. Who as the source of all life must therefore by definition be worthy of honour and thanks. But Paul says, oh, we don't bother. We don't give it. Ha, huh, I'm self-made. We take credit for all our successes without giving a second thought to our creator. We're like a baby who pretends that they cooked their own dinner, bought their own house and drove themselves to work. Even when every part of their experience denies it. Then in verse 25, Paul explains again, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. His point here is that in the squashing of the truth about God, we leave behind that truth, a vacuum that needs to be filled, so we fill it with a lie, a lie, swapping out the maker of all things for something that we ourselves have made up and worshipping that instead, filling the God-shaped hole in our lives with things that we make up, even though we know we're doing it. I live for work. I live for my family. I couldn't live without sport. Yeah, really? You want to swap out the eternal creator, the maker of all things, the source of the life that you enjoy for a football? Really? You want to do that? Yet we all do it, says the passage, in various different ways. The third squashing of God is in verse 28. What does it say there? They did not see fit to acknowledge God, says Paul. Literally here, that they, they examined or tested God and binned him off. Humanity think that they are the ones standing in judgment over God himself, going, oh, well, let me decide whether God exists or not. As if he deserves our acknowledgement. Uh, we are blind to the arrogance of it, but we bin God off as rubbish. I don't believe in all that stuff. I don't think God exists. As if it was a choice that we had. Again, like children refusing to believe in parents, we reject God because we say he failed all our tests. Before we move on, just notice what's going on here. This is the, the problem with humanity is not that we've just done a few misguided things wrong. The problem with humanity is not that our lives are difficult. The problem is not that we've just made a few moral errors, although we do. We'll be thinking more about that in a couple of weeks. No, the problem with humanity is that in a million different ways, you and I, all of us, have swapped out the truth about God for a lie, for a God that we've made up or no God at all. Religious people do it, don't they? They make up a God that they like, who they can control, who suits their needs and blesses their plans. Atheists deny that God is there at all, but it's the same root a suppression of the truth that God is our maker who owns us and to whom we owe everything. You can see why that's so offensive, can't you? And why God has to oppose that. You know, this isn't God getting annoyed that you and I are just colouring outside of the lines a little bit. No, this is you and I ghosting God, ignoring the one that we were designed to live for, pretending in an active, wicked way that we can do what we want, live how we like, deliberately ignoring the fact that we belong to the one to whom we were made for. I don't know about you, but I think sometimes we think about sin as like, it's like turning up to school in the wrong uniform. Do you go to a school like that where they get annoyed if you're wearing the wrong hair bobble or if your collar's not quite right or that kind of thing? And we think maybe God's a bit like that. Well, it's not like that at all, is it? It's much more like 
going into school and pushing the head teacher over and robbing her car keys and stealing her car and ram raiding the school with it. That's much more like what we've done. And of course God can't turn a blind eye. Because if he did turn a blind eye, he would become as much of a liar as we are. And God cannot lie. So that's what we've done. How has it affected us? How has it affected us? Well, come with me to verses 21 and 23, and notice the word became, which is repeated twice. Let me read those verses again. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. These are some of the most devastating words in the passage, and there are a collection of very devastating words in this passage. In ditching God, we are told that we become futile in our thinking, darkened in our understanding, and have become fools. Oh, you think, oh, that's a bit harsh, isn't it, Paul? There are lots of really wise people in the world, surely. But just think about it. Doesn't this explain why people who consider themselves you know, far too intelligent to believe in a creator God, far too intelligent to believe in creation, far too intelligent to believe in a creator God, find themselves checking their horoscopes, buying crystals, crossing their fingers as they wait for their medical exam results. It's why highly intelligent people who seem to be able to earn lots of money, to be able to navigate their way through complex engineering problems and medical problems, can't admit they're wrong or say sorry to their children. It's why a culture that considers itself way, way too sophisticated to go to church on Sunday, we're way too sophisticated for that. We're, Sunday, you know, that's what they did in the 1950s. Then instead watches Love Island, swoons over the latest celebrity gossip, gets just a little bit too excited about football results. It's why the teenager at school who's way too cool to consider that Jesus might have risen from the dead, no one believes that, do they? No one cool believes that. And instead, they waste their lives in the shallowness of social media, losing themselves in the vanity of our age, without wondering for a moment whether life was about more than how you smell or how you look. We've become fools, says Paul, fools, content with distractions, superstitions, and vague, wishful ideas. You know, the very idea that our life might be a gift from a God who made us, designed to be lived for him, is rejected, isn't it? And instead, we spend our lives doing what? Well, building bigger and bigger houses, getting more and more stuff, and then we die. And someone plays, I did it my way at our funeral. How did that go for you? How did that go? Dark, futile foolishness, says Paul. Now, we can press into this a bit more, I think, can't we? We can see this clearly. Rejecting God, as we've seen, suppressing the truth about him, that's a worship decision, isn't it? That is in the category of what you believe religiously, who you believe God is, what you will worship. And I think because it's in that category, we think of it as a rather small decision. But the, the truth of the passage is it doesn't stay there, does it? But what we decide about who God is actually infiltrates every other area of our lives. As creatures who are made by God, we're designed to worship in that case, then, our rejection of whom we are made for will flow down into every other area of our lives. And what might seem like quite a small thing has massive ramifications for us. Because, as someone else has said, what we think about when we think about God is the most important thing about us. 
What we think about when we think about God is the most important thing about us. It determines what we think life is for. It determines who we think we are. It determines what we think we should do. So our suppression of the self-evident truth about something so central to being human drives the folly, the shallowness, and the distract yourself till you die attitude of our culture. Let me just ask you this morning, listen, if you're a young person here this morning, and maybe you're a little bit distracted, let me just ask you this, straight up. You might think that the biggest decision that you face in your life is what you're going to wear, perhaps, or what you're going to study, maybe, or who you're going to love. Let me tell you that the most important thing is this. Who do you think God is? If you get that question wrong, the rest of your life will be spent in foolish pointlessness. And that's true for all of us this morning, whoever we are. And Paul wants us to see the crazy folly in our world living from this suppression of the truth about who God is. Finally then, what are the consequences? What are the consequences? Having suppressed the truth about God and become foolish God replaces, what happens next? Well, now we're back at where we started, and in, I guess, maybe the toughest part of the passage, the consequence of our suppressing the truth is God's right, settled, just, holy wrath. And where do we see that? Well, three times the passage repeats it, spelling it out in slightly different ways. Look at verse 24 first. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonouring of their bodies among themselves. Again, look down at verse 26 now. For this reason God gave them up to dishonourable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Down again at verse 28. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Start with me in unpacking this in verse 28. Look at verse 28. There's a play on words here in the Greek which helps us see what God is doing. The words that our translators have translated seeing fit to acknowledge is the same root as the word for gave up. There's a symmetry between what humanity has done and what God is doing. Humanity have rejected God and God is handing them over. It's justice, yeah? Right recompense. There is a symmetry between what has been done wrong and what is being done as a consequence. You you don't want me, you say in your sin, and God says, you won't have me then. Those things match one another. Not in a vindictive tantrum, but in a settled, holy and just way You say to God, we don't want you. You won't have me, he says. And what does that leave us with? Well, instead of living to obey the God who made us, we are left instead with what verse 24 calls what? The lusts of our own heart. Our own unbridled desires become our guiding light. 
Desires which then dishonor our bodies, verse 24, as they work themselves out in the chaos of our world. A world which, in which any kind of sex, even a natural sex, as Paul puts it in verses 26 and 27, any sex, if it is desired, it is permitted because we are driven by our desires, whatever the consequences. And I know in our culture that even the mention of homosexuality in verses 26 and 27 is controversial. It's like fingers down a blackboard, isn't it, as you read it? But Paul's point that homosexuality is unnatural is not to deny that people are born with homosexual desire. Rather, his point is about the unnaturalness of the physicality of it. And Paul isn't trying to be narrow-minded. He's not trying to argue that some sexual transgressions are worse than others. Rather, his point is, if you want to see the blindness of a culture, if you want to see what happens when a culture is under the judgment of God, given over to their own desires, then look at what they do with sex. And look at the carnage it causes. See how unrestrained following of any sexual desire works out for anybody. Because the truth is, gay or straight, if sexual desire is your God, if lust is your leader, it will destroy you. So says Paul, stop being so close-minded and narrow, you 21st century Brit, and consider the possibility that the relational brokenness in your world, the pain all over our world, might reveal something that being driven by desire is a kind of judgment and not a kind of freedom. Being driven by desire is a judgment, not a freedom. But if you're triggered by the sexual chaos, then actually it gets even more difficult, doesn't it, down in verse 29, because then there's a whole manner of unrightness Take a look, covetousness, literally the word greed, evil intents towards one another, driven by envy, jealousy that drives us to fight and kill and lie. Uh, so too, gossip and slander, when we talk about others behind their back to do them harm, stabbing, in them, stabbing them in the back to get ourselves ahead. We hate God, we're told, we invent evil. And in case you thought you were doing all right on the list so far, we disobey parents. We are ruthless in our pursuit of our own desires, and we do all of that and cheer others on as they do that, while knowing deep in our hearts that such a lie, verse 32, deserves to die. Now, I think Paul's point here is very, very simple. It's very, very difficult to hear, but it is very simple. If you want proof that the world is suppressing the truth about God... If you want to know beyond a shadow of a doubt that our world is broken and under the just judgment of the God from whom we've all turned, if you want to know that for real, you want to know that surely, just take a look around you. Take a look around. How can you possibly explain all of this in any other way, he says? How can you possibly understand why in a culture that has pressed so hard and fast into the do whatever you want to do, have whatever you want to have. Be with whoever you want to be with. Why our culture like that is more depressed, more violent, more unsafe, more unstable, more discontent than ever. You know, our passage takes stories like Ben Oliver's and says, do you know what? That's hell. That's hell. The wrath of being handed over to your own sin and the sin of others. A victim and a victimizer. And you and I might not be quite in his shoes. We might be, but we might not be. But the truth is that the backstabbing gossip on the playground, the boastful lie about your work achievements, your unwillingness to obey your parents creates the same kind of window into hell 
as God hands us over to the chaos of our desires. You don't want me, you won't have me. Hurting and being hurt. Listen, this morning, the problem in our world is not an environmental crisis. The problem in our world is not political upheaval or a cost-of-living crisis. The problem in our world is not a war in Ukraine. The problems in our world cannot be solved by better schools, more money for the NHS, or by a new leader for Russia. None of these are problems that we can solve by taking justice into our own hands because we're mixed up in it ourselves. We live in a window into hell as God reveals his righteous wrath at all ungodliness and unrighteousness. Now, I know this is difficult this morning, but I think what we've been asked to see is that God's right, just, and holy anger at sin is not just a future event. God's right judgment on sin is not just something that we will meet one day in the future. We will. We're going to look at that in chapter 2. But actually, you can see that future event today today. It's visible all around us in the chaos and the carnage of our world. And while in nice middle-class Egbeth we might have tried to paint over it with farrow and ball paint, still if we're honest this morning, we will know that the chaos of our sin screams at us that much of our lives is a foretaste of hell itself. That's God's judgment as we're handed over to our own desires. Now, I hope you can see that this morning. I know it's difficult, but I hope you can see it. Because what I want us to see is that there is a saviour for a world in that kind of mess. A saviour not just from our sin, but from the wrath that our sin deserves. That's what we're being told in the book of Romans. That we live in a world where God's wrath is revealed, but also the gospel is revealed. The good news of the Lord Jesus Christ born in humility, dying on a cross, rising in victory. And we're being told that God the Son has not only paid for our sin, but has borne our judgment in his own body on the cross, where he pours out his blood as a wrath-bearing, sin-conquering sacrifice, rising from the dead, revealing a way for lost sinners like us, God deniers like us, to be covered in his righteousness. That in the moment that we put our faith in him, his rightness covers us. God's judgment is gone. Rescued from God's wrath, not because God turns a blind eye to our wickedness, but because justice is satisfied in Jesus. Listen this morning, I hope that somewhere in that prison, Paul Oliver hears that news. Can you imagine it? There's a light in your darkness. There's a saviour from all that mess. There's a rescuer from this lost world. His name is Jesus. Where there is justice for our sin and the sins of others and a righteousness of God by faith for all who believe. I hope someone tells him that. But I know that you've been told that. So won't you believe and trust in the Lord Jesus who alone can save us from all of that? Let's pray. just give you a moment just to think and ponder on what we've heard.
loving, merciful, holy God. We come to you this morning conscious that our sinful rejection of you has led us into a dark folly where we're ruled by our desires to our own ruin and destruction. How we thank you that into the darkness of our own ruin and destruction you have sent your Son, the Lord Jesus, full of grace and truth and light and hope. Thank you that he surrendered himself to death on a cross that we might be forgiven and given his rightness to cover over our sin. Oh Lord, we love you and we're sorry for our sins. And please come, Lord Jesus, and rescue us from this window into hell in which we live that we might enjoy and be with you in your presence where there is no more sin or sickness or suffering forever and ever and ever. Amen. Well, let's stand and sing as we respond to what we've heard. All I have is Christ. Let's stand and sing together.